You know, God used Romans 13, verses 13 and 14 to bring Augustine, the great church father in the late 300s, to faith in Jesus Christ. We read about that in the Confessions. Isn't that amazing? I would never think that those verses would bring anyone to faith in Jesus Christ. But we'll see in a moment how they did. We're reminded of God's sovereign grace. Augustine wasn't saved because he was such a good person. He wasn't saved because he kept God's commands. Instead, he was enslaved to sexual sin. And he lived for the fame and praise of other people. So he was saved through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He received the forgiveness that only God gives. So don't think today, when you think of someone like Augustine, who's great in history, don't think that he was saved because he was fundamentally a good person. He was saved by the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, Augustine realized that to be a disciple means to say goodbye to sin in his life. Augustine was crying out to God in a garden before his conversion, asking God, how long, how long? He admitted he was still enthralled by his sin. He loved his sin. He didn't want to give it up. But God had gotten hold of his heart. And let's pick up the story in his own words. I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when suddenly I heard the voice of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house, chanting over and over again, pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. Immediately I ceased weeping and began most earnestly to think whether it was usual for children in some kind of game to sing such a song. But I could not remember ever having heard the like. So stopping the torrent of my tears, I got to my feet, for I could not but think that this was a divine command to open the Bible and read the first passage I should light upon. So I quickly returned to the bench where Alpheus was sitting, for there I had put down the apostle's book when I had left there. I snatched it up, opened it, and in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to, for instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. And he was saved. He was saved in that instant. Reading that text, he was a new man. He had turned to God and turned away from his sin and his idolatry. We see here the power of the Word of God. Well, let's pray that God will speak to us today as we look at these verses before us. 
there in part of the exhortation section, Romans 12 through 15. We begin in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we are to give ourselves entirely to God. That we're to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And these verses are part of that program, part of that pattern. What does it mean to give ourselves to God? What does it mean to be transformed? Verses 8 through 14 of chapter 3 help us to understand this. I think these verses can be divided into two main sections. And it's really very simple. I mean, you saw that probably even as Eric read it. Verses 8 through 10, put on love. And then verses 11 through 14, put on Christ. So verses 8 through 10, put on love. Verses 11 through 14, put on Christ. So we'll begin by looking at verses 8 through 10 where we are commanded to live in love or put on love. Paul says that the only thing we should owe one another is to love one another. Just a little parenthetical note here. We, we actually had a little article about this, if you noticed it, in our um, messenger. But sometimes people have read this verse to say that it's absolutely wrong to take out any loan whatsoever. And, and I think that's a mistake. It isn't wise, is it, to take on huge debts financially. A huge debt can cripple you uh, financially, psychologically, spiritually. That, that's not wise. But, but Paul's speaking rhetorically here. So we ought, we ought not to read this verse to say that you ought to never take a loan out on a car or a house or something like that. It's a matter, it's a matter of wisdom, isn't it? So there's no, there's no rule here about not taking out any debt. So let's get to our main point. We're called upon to love one another. And Paul explains why. Because love, he says, fulfills the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. We're not left in any doubt about what Paul has in mind because he cites specific commandments. For the commandments, verse 9, you see it? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment, Paul could have listed more, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is itself a commandment from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So Paul quotes four of the ten commandments. What do we learn from this? about love, we learn from this that love has an objective content. Love is measured and assessed by commandments. In our culture, we measure love by feelings. But God tells us love is measured and assessed by commands. Often, adultery is justified on the basis of feelings, such as no one ever loved like this. I, I, I was bowled over with love. Love just so filled my soul. But we learn, we learn from this text, don't we, that adultery is never love. It's always of the flesh. It's an expression of selfishness rather than love, no matter how one feels about it. When we love, we give ourselves entirely to one's, to our spouse, even when our needs aren't 
being met. We fulfill the promises we have made in marriage. So we don't really love if we're having an affair. We can apply the same principle to marrying unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 7.39, there's a commandment. Do you know that verse? Especially young people. That's for all of us, right? Marry only in the Lord. Only marry other believers. Only marry those who are truly following Christ. I mean, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? How, how could you marry someone else if Christ is your life, if Christ is the center of your life? How could you marry someone else and Christ isn't the center of their life? And yet people justify marrying non-Christians because they're in love. Because of feelings that sweep over them. I had a pastor tell me it was okay for believers to marry unbelievers because sometimes it's their only chance. Those are his exact words. A pastor told me that. Others think it's okay to marry an unbeliever because they are convinced that they will convert the unbelieving spouse. What an incredibly naive idea. But fundamentally, it's contrary to what God commands. And therefore, it's contrary to what? According to this text, it's contrary to love. We don't measure love by our feelings in our oh-so-feeling-oriented culture where we congratulate ourselves as a culture because of our emphasis on feelings that we're so much more loving than previous generations, which I think is a myth. We don't, we don't measure love by our feelings, but by what God's Word says. Paul gives us two other examples. They're pretty obvious, more obvious than, at least to our culture, than the one I've been focusing on. We aren't loving others if we murder them. Not so hard to see, right? Or steal from them. Love considers the good of the other. Instead of taking the life of another, love manifests itself in helping others flourish. Instead of stealing from others, we think of how we can contribute to their financial need. One thing is obvious. Love has objective content. No one who murders or steals is following the course of love. And Paul says he could list other commands. What he says applies to other commands as well. In other words, all of God's commands reveal to us what love is. But did you notice Paul goes even further? He tells us that coveting is contrary to love. Not, not just an action now, but a desire. What is coveting? Coveting is desiring what God has not chosen to give you. So you're living contrary to love if in your heart you wish you had the house, the boat, or perhaps for children, the bicycle of your neighbor. You're not living in love if you wish you had the wife or husband of someone else. You're not living in love if you wish you had the reputation or the status or the health of someone else. 
If you covet those things, Paul says all of God's commands are summed up in the words that we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. By the way, there's no command here to love ourselves. Some people who've been dazzled by the self-esteem movement have read this text as if this text commands us to love ourselves. Now, I don't, I don't want to dismiss, dismiss the idea that some people have a distorted view of themselves. But this text assumes that we love ourselves in the sense that we always want to promote our own interests. And no matter how miserable you feel about yourself, you still want to promote your own interests because you don't like being miserable. And he's saying we all want to promote our own interests in life. We all want to be happy. Pascal said, right, even the person who commits suicide does it because they'll be happier to do that than to live in the misery they're experiencing. And he says here, assuming we love ourselves, how can we promote the interests of the neighbor? And, of course, those interests are defined by God's commands, aren't they? Not by our own feelings, not by our own intuitions, ultimately, but by what God commands. Paul sums it up in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love always considers what is best for the other. But remember, it's defined by God's commands instead of by our feelings. Love isn't sentimental or plastic. Uh, I like to use the illustration when we think of God's commands. The commands God gives are sort of like the banks of a river. Uh, you have the river flowing in all its power and its beauty. But, but God's commands are like the banks of the river. The, the, the banks of a river keep a river flowing, right? It, keep it, it keeps the river flowing with, with power and authority. If the banks are destroyed of a river, the river is dispersed. And the river loses its power and authority. And that's what happens if we throw out God's command. Love vanishes all together. The banks of the river are absolutely vital for love. But love is much more than keeping commands. It's not less. Love never violates God's commands. But love is much more than keeping commands. You know, the banks of a river may be solid, but there can be other problems in the river. You, you, can, have, you can have log jams or, 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 or a dam or something like that that, that hinders the flow of water. So, so, so the commandments are, are really fundamental, and they're, and they're really basic, aren't they? Although we need to be reminded of this in our culture that's moved away in so many ways from God's commands. But that's just fundamental. That's just the beginning, because love is so much more than commands, although it's not less. So, so let me return to my first example. As a husband or wife, you may not be committing adultery, But that doesn't mean, does it, that you're necessarily loving your spouse. Because that's just the beginning. Are you, husbands, are you cherishing and nourishing and caring for your wife? Are you you building her up 
and encouraging her? Are you pointing her upwards? Or are you expressing anger and irritation regularly with her? And the same goes for wives. Are you, are you encouraging and building up and strengthening your husband? Or are you constantly reminding him where he falls short? Everyone's different, right? Every marriage is different in terms of what it means to love one another. I know, I know it means so much to Diane in terms of our relationship, showing love to her if I just do practical things around the house, if I clean the bathroom or occasionally sweep the kitchen or, or do the dishes because she does a ton around the house. And if I, if I don't do anything, she starts to feel like she's my servant, you know? And, uh, you know, I just reside there to receive help from her because she does so much. Every, every, every relationship is different, right? Your relationship may not look exactly like that, but you know your, your spouses, right? What does it mean to show love in practical, concrete ways? Things that aren't written down, they're not rules, are they? But we, we, we contemplate what, what can we do in our relationships to make our spouses flourish so that they sense our love for them in concrete and practical ways. And, and that's true in every arena of life. What, what can we do at work to show love to our fellow workers, even if they're incredibly difficult to work with, if they're annoying and irritating? It may be that they are. But how can we show love to them concretely and specifically? How I, one of the most fundamental ways we can love one another is just to listen and care about what others tell us about their own lives. I, I noticed this this week, just speaking to a non-believer, and I didn't mind. I noticed I've talked to her so many times, again and again and again, and you know she's never, ever asked me about anything in my life. It's okay. I don't mind. She always tells me what's happening to her. My My relationship with her isn't, I want to tell you about what's happening in my life. I'm there to hear what's happening in her, so we have an inroads to talk to her. Let me talk about a theological issue just for a little bit here. How can Paul say that love fulfills the law when he's argued earlier in the letter that we're no longer under the law? So for those of you who have studied Romans or who have been with us, it's clear that Paul says we're no longer under the Mosaic law or under the Mosaic covenant. Romans 6 and 7, Galatians 3 and 4, 2 Corinthians 3. If we're no longer under that covenant, if we're no longer under the Mosaic law, why does he speak of fulfilling the law? That seems contradictory. But clearly Paul says here, love fulfills the law. So uh, this is a longer conversation. I just want to say something quickly. I would argue that the commands cited here are not authoritative because they're part of the Mosaic law, because we're not under that covenant. They are authoritative because they're part of what Paul calls in Galatians 6.2 and 1 Corinthians 9.21, the law of Christ. Many Old Testament laws are not moral norms. 
They're part of the covenant that has passed away. But the moral norms of the law, the moral absolutes of the law, are part of the law of Christ, and they transcend time. They transcend that covenant. And they're actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ, as the whole Old Testament is fulfilled in him. They, they transcend that covenant because they represent God's character. So the Old Testament law then should be read in light of the fulfillment we have in Jesus Christ. And how do we know what applies today? The New Testament is our guide. The New Testament instructs us. So we don't just make this up. The New Testament informs us what those moral norms are. I think it's really clear reading the Old Testament itself. But just in case we get confused, God is kind, right? He reveals that clearly to us. So in keeping those moral norms, we fulfill what God intended in the law all along. Okay, so first first point, we're to live in love. And to live in love means to keep commands, but it's, but it's more than that. And second, now the second point, put on Christ. Let's read verses 11 through 14 again, because that's where this comes from. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So what's the main command here? I would argue it's in verse 14. Put on Jesus Christ. That means he uses clothing imagery. Clothe yourself with Jesus. What it means to live in love, just in case you've gone astray here, or I've led you astray, it, 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 it isn't fundamentally be a good person, be a moral person. Instead, what it means to live in love is be a Christ-centered person. Put on Jesus. Follow Jesus. Live a Christ-centered, a christ saturated life. Since Jesus is our life, and since we love Jesus, and he's redeemed us and saved us, put on Christ. Consider here Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Paul says, all those who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. All those who are Christians, that's what I think he means by baptized, All those who are Christians have put on Christ. The word put on is the exact same word. All all those who are baptized, that is, all those who are Christians, who truly believe, of course, I know some people who are baptized may not truly be believers, but he has in mind here true believers, right? All those who are true believers have put on Christ. Same word that we find in Romans 13, 14. Galatians 3, 27. If you're a Christian, you're clothed with Christ. If you're a Christian, you've put on Christ. Romans 13, 14, put on Christ. Command. Galatians 3, 27, you've put on Christ. Wait, wait a minute, is Paul confused? Did he forget in Romans 13, 14 what he wrote in Galatians 3, 27? Absolutely not. Both are true. It's the already not yet, isn't it? We have, 
As Christians, we are clothed with Christ. We have put on Christ. And yet, we're commanded to put Him on. Paul gives us the reason and three examples of what this means. So let's look at these one at a time. Let's look at the reason first. Why should we put on Christ? What's the reason? Paul tells us in verses 11 and 12, we should put on Christ because the night is ending and the dawn is coming. Final salvation and final judgment are coming. And we need to be ready. The day gets nearer every day. So we must wake up to what is coming. Right now, we're living, so to speak, in the nighttime. But the day is dawning. The day is coming. Jesus is returning. The night won't last forever. And every moment that passes, that day is nearer. Salvation is nearer than when we believed. So that final day will arrive And we must put on Christ because that day is coming. What does it mean to put on Christ? Paul tells us in verse 12, we must put off the works of darkness and put on the weapons. That's the word he uses, weapons of light. Even as believers, right, the darkness threatens us. We can have, we can have spiritual nightmares, so to speak where evil attacks us. Did you notice verse 14? The desires of the flesh still attract us as believers. So, so there's that tension. We, we are clothed with Christ, and yet we still, we still have the desires of the flesh as believers. We're still tempted as Christians to do evil. But Paul says, put on Christ, make no provision for fleshly desires. Throw off that darkness and pursue the light. So three ways. And I'm going to spend most of the time on the first two because C.J. really talked about, if you were here last week, C.J. Mahaney talked about the third one. Really, that was his whole sermon last week. So I'll just hit that quickly at the end. Oh, that's very significant, isn't it? But I want to talk about the first two mainly. So first, we must walk in the light and say no to drunkenness and orgies. Well, that's that's obvious, isn't it? Really, that's obvious. But life hasn't changed much since the New Testament was written. Are we so much more progressive and different from New Testament times? Well, visit a college campus, right? Or adult parties. Drugs, drunkenness, and orgies are common. Read about what happened in the Olympic Village. Well, don't read it. As Christians, we can be tempted to give way to the pleasures of the world. That's for, he gives this command to Christians, doesn't he? To you and me. We may turn to these things for enjoyment. Maybe we turn to these things because we just feel miserable. And we want to get away from our current misery. But in either case, we're not finding our contentment and joy in Jesus Christ. If we give way to such pleasures, we're not putting on Jesus Christ, the Bible clearly teaches, doesn't it? It's not wrong to drink alcohol. Some Christians have thought that. That's, a, that's something that's not written in Scripture. 
Scripture does not forbid drinking alcohol, but it does forbid getting drunk very clearly. We must beware that such gifts don't become the path to license. If you can't handle it, drinking, and that is you fall astray, you should refrain from it altogether. And there's a lot of people in our culture and in our churches, and that's true. I'm not making rules for anyone, but know yourself. Paul acknowledges believers may be tempted to do drugs, get drunk, and participate in orgies. But he says the mark of a believer is that they refrain from such things, and they put on Christ instead of caving in the fleshly desires. So that's the first one. Second, what it means to put on Christ, what it means to cast off the works of darkness and put on the weapons of light is to refrain from sexual immorality and sensuality. Often drug use and drunkenness are connected with sexual sin. No surprise there. Again, let me just say, sexual pleasures and marriage, they're a gift of God, aren't they? A wonderful gift of God for which we praise Him. But our sexual lives are to be lived under God's Lordship. And the Lord calls on us to live in a way that pleases Him by giving our bodies to Him. Almost all of us, maybe I was tempted to say all of us, but I'll just say almost, almost all of us are tempted to sin Sexually, the pleasures of the body are intense and delightful. They're from God. But Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Master, and He calls upon us to give our bodies to Him as a living sacrifice. Virtually all of us sin sexually. I was tempted again to say all of us sin sexually, but let me just say virtually all of us sin sexually. Jesus says those who lust in their heart are guilty of adultery. Still, we must be careful. There's no excuse for that, is there? But, but something more is happening if that's beginning to progress in our lives in specific ways. Looking at pornography, actually engaging in sexual sin, indulging in it. That's a sign that you're not fighting against the lusts of your heart. Now, now, I, w- I want to negotiate two things here, you know. We, we, we're sinners and we fail. Satan, Satan wants us to give up, doesn't he? Satan wants us to think, if you're struggling with this, or whatever sin it is, that we'll never win. Remember, the desire to sin doesn't mean we're defeated. And even many defeats doesn't mean the game's over, does it? So, you know, in a basketball game, the other team can score a lot of points and still lose. The point, ultimately, in the basketball game is to win the game, right? Finally, at the end of it all. So, so we may have very many defeats along the way, but the point is ultimately to win. The point is ultimately to say no to sin. I don't play many sports anymore because I can't win anymore. I hate, I don't like to play if I can't win. But, you know, if you're playing somebody in a game and there, it, there comes a point in the game, right, if it's tennis or basketball, you can sense it if you're winning and all of a sudden you sense, okay, right now I've got to, I've got to crush this person, right? 
because they're discouraged right now. And that's the time to really pour it on, right? So that's the time you just nail it down because you don't want to give them any psychological hope right at that point. That's that's the point you really want to tamp them down. Well, that's the way it is with sin, right? We've got to kill it ultimately. The other team may get points, but ultimately we win. None of us is a paragon of virtue. We all give thanks for the cleansing blood of the cross. None of us can enter God's presence on the basis of our sexual purity. So there's a great battle there that we're waging every day. And we all need help. But if you're losing in this battle right now, you need to get help. You, you, you need to get help. If you're in looking at pornography or actually engaging in sin in some specific way, you need to talk to someone who's more spiritually mature. Talk to one of us as elders or, or another spiritually mature person or a friend who came with you who's strong. Because the darkness is called the darkness for a reason. Sexual sin will destroy you. And if you keep it private and secret, it will not stay there. It will advance. I just read recently, maybe some of you saw this. I forget even where I saw it. But a pastor in a church was having an affair with a teenage girl. And he was keeping it secret. But he forgot his cell phone on his pulpit. And another church member picked it up for him, and right then he got a text message from this teenage girl, and he read the text message, and it came all out in the open, just like that. Just like that, his ministry was over. His ministry was destroyed in a moment. Well, no, it wasn't. It was destroyed in many moments, wasn't it? Over and over and over again, he gave in to his lust, and he quit fighting against it, and then he communicated to the girl his lust, and then he acted on it. He acted on it many times. He didn't put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So God doesn't give us commands, does he, to make us unhappy. He commands, he gives us these commands because he loves us. He knows, he knows what will destroy us and devastate us and what will fulfill us. And contrary to what the world says, what it means to be a Christian is to trust God for these things. Instead of leaning on our own understanding, our own intuitions, and our own feelings about these matters. We are to give our bodies to him, realizing that he is the Lord of our lives. So finally, just really quickly, as I said, I'm just making this brief. We could talk about it more. But thirdly, we must remove quarreling and jealousy from our lives. You know, not the only sins out there aren't sexual sins and bodily sins. I mean, these, these kind of sins are devastating. And, and I, if you weren't here last week, just go back and listen to CJ's excellent message to us last week on our website. Strife and jealousy can ruin us as well because strife and jealousy comes from a desire to be worshipped. That's what James says, adulteresses, right? Where, where, do, where does that come from? We want to be worshipped. We want to be the center. We want to be God. And Paul says, we face those temptations. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian if you face those temptations. He says, say no to them. 
put them to death. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the weapons of light. So, brothers and sisters, we praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ. He has triumphed over sin and death, and we belong to Him. We are, if you're a Christian, we are in Christ Jesus. We are clothed with Christ. We have already put on Christ. So we're not to put on something that we don't already have. We're to put on what we already have. As the Apostle Paul says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thanks be to God who gives us victory over sin through our Lord Jesus Christ who has triumphed over sin and death, Satan, the world, and our flesh. Oh Lord, we can be full of confidence and hope through many temptations, struggles, failures. But finally, Lord, through your grace, and as we fight sin, we will triumph through our Lord Jesus Christ. We will be new. As you made Augustine new, you have made us new. And may we walk in newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.